So today is week number five of our Kingdom and Chaos series. And let me remind all of us what it is we're talking about here in this series and why it matters. And then we'll go to the scriptures together today, beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, I'm reading a book right now that was composed in 1643 by Miyamoto Musashi. And this guy was considered one of the most famous samurai in all of Japan's history. And I've always been intrigued and fascinated by the training and the discipline of samurai. One of my favorite films of all time is the old 2003 Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai. And no, Tom Cruise does not play a samurai. I've had people say, gonna watch Tom Cruise be a samurai? How dumb is that? That's not what it is. Tom is not the last samurai, but it's, it's an incredible film. I, I love that genre and that subject matter. When, when I was in high school, I read a book about a man named Gishin Funakoshi, who was considered the father of modern karate. And I, I learned in that book that the, the greatest Japanese swordsman of all time won most of his duels with a wooden sword. It's just, just fascinating stuff. Um, I have a friend who loves reading about Spartan history, so we have a little debate about you know, who would win in a battle, the samurai or the Spartans. It's kind of like debating who would win in their primes, Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali. And the answer is Muhammad Ali, of course. <laughs> and in case you're breathlessly wondering, fight simulations tend to put the samurai slightly ahead of the Spartans when they match them up. But in these books about the samurai, they often refer to the many dozens of kingdoms that made up the empire of Japan. Japan's a very small country geographically, but in its early history, it had as many as a hundred different kingdoms inside that land. It's kind of like when Abraham moved toward what would become the promised land in Israel. Even though it's a small territory, when we read the Old Testament, there's lots of kings and kingdoms operating in that land. Now, we, we kind of lose our kingdom understanding a little bit uh, today because we don't call our country a kingdom. We don't live in the kingdom of America. We live in the United States of America. We don't have a king. We're a unified country of 50 states. And you know, most nations have moved away from functional monarchies. And so most countries today are not called kingdoms. You know, um, England is the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Uh, Ethiopia is the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia. France is the French Republic. Germany is the Federal Republic of Germany. Now, Norway is still a kingdom. Norway is the kingdom of Norway. Uh, Egypt is the uh, Arab Republic of Egypt. Uh, even uh, Israel is the modern state of Israel. But, but whether a country is called a state or a republic or a kingdom, the, the framework of governments and nations helps us understand this concept of God's kingdom. And we need to understand it. Because Jesus, the most brilliant and the most important person who ever lived, was obsessed with God's kingdom. It was his central message and it was his clearest passion. In fact, it was the only thing that Jesus ever called 
gospel. The gospel is not, uh, God, forgive me for my sins and come into my heart so that I get to go to heaven when I die. Now, that's included in the gospel, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is the message of a king and a kingdom that has the answer to the deepest needs of humanity. The, the gospel is God's answer. It's his kingdom answer to the purpose, the ache, the longing, and the need of humans. So what is a kingdom? A kingdom is a bounded territory where certain laws for living get upheld and enforced. Now, in a true kingdom, the laws that get upheld are the laws of the king. If it's not a true kingdom, then the laws that are upheld would be the laws of Congress or Parliament or the whims of the dictator, possibly. And since a kingdom is a bounded territory, it also provides a sense of identity and belonging. I live in the United States of America, a democratic republic. Um, I don't live in the People's Republic of China under a communist regime. And so the kingdom to which I belong offers a sense of identity and it helps shape and inform the way I see myself and the way I see the world around me. But where all natural kingdoms are bounded kingdoms, um, U.S. territory has a clear beginning and end. And when two sovereign nations cross each other's boundaries, it's a conflict. But where natural kingdoms are bounded territories, the kingdom of God is unbounded. The territory of the kingdom is the human heart. Now, the kingdom... Um, uh, extends beyond the human heart, but it's not limited uh, or set in a natural bounded location. And Jesus' followers had a really hard time with this. They kept thinking that the kingdom that he was constantly preaching would be set up inside the bounded country of Israel. In fact, even at the end of Jesus' time on earth in Acts 1-6, they're still asking, Lord, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, is this the time? Are you going to set up shop and be our actual king and restore an actual monarchy here? They didn't get it. Jesus had clearly told them the kingdom is within you. That the territory of the kingdom is the human heart. Now, it extends to all areas of human life and experience as people submit to it. So the kingdom influences government, business, education, law, uh, but it starts right here in the heart. And, and, and since it's unbounded, a person in Kenya can live inside the kingdom just as much as a person in Claremont or Montclair or Laverne. But since this is kind of a tricky concept for people to grasp, Jesus did two main things in his ministry. Number one, he taught the kingdom, and number two, he demonstrated the kingdom. He, he, he taught the kingdom. He explained the kingdom to people in ways that he thought they would understand. So he told stories. He, he shared parables. He preached the Sermon on the Mount as an explanation of kingdom living. 
And then he, he demonstrated the kingdom. He showed them what it looked like to live in God's kingdom. Everything Jesus Christ did was a show and tell of the kingdom of God. So how does the kingdom answer chaos? Because that's the premise of this whole series. Well, when a lonely, insecure teenager, and that was me for a lot of the years in my life, meets Jesus, they meet a king, first of all, who loves them. In fact, they meet a king that loves them more than any other person could ever love them. And this love of the king, this love of Jesus, swallows up human loneliness and insecurity and rejection. And they not only meet a king, but they also meet a new way of living as a loved, accepted, valuable person who can contribute positively to the world around them, regardless of how other people treat them. An angry husband who terrorizes his family meets a king who calls him to change, who, who, who cures the rage in his soul and then teaches him how to be a husband the way God designed. Um, when, when Jerry Hardy and I were on one of our international trips, we met this amazing couple, this beautiful humble, special couple that just love God so much. Um, he, he's the, the, the husband was the superintendent of a Christian school and they were amazing. And we were talking alone with her at one point and she said to us very matter of factly, yeah, when my husband became a Christian, he stopped beating me. And we were kind of taken back when she said it. She said it so casually and she, and she said, yeah, the gospel changed him. Now, no human told him to stop beating his wife. Jesus told him to stop beating his wife. Jesus calmed that rage inside him and introduced him to a new paradigm, a new kingdom for living. A greedy business owner encounters a king who explains to that person why they were gifted to create wealth and what that's supposed to be for. And, and then they, they, they get introduced to a whole new way of doing business with different values and different priorities that serve people while still turning a profit. So the kingdom is a relationship with Jesus that also introduces us to a Jesus way of living in our world. It heals us. It shows us who we are and it helps us find our place in the world. The kingdom is Christ-likeness externalized. It doesn't stay secluded in a prayer closet. It's not limited to an hour on Sunday morning. It's Christ-likeness externalized, and it's unbounded. People in any location at any time can access the reality of the kingdom of God and find the way life was meant to be lived. It's brilliant. It's breathtaking. And in 1 Samuel chapter 9, if you're there, the nation of Israel was about to become the kingdom of Israel under the leadership of their first king, King Saul. Israel had just come out of 400 years of the very turbulent, chaotic period of the judges where the people kept 
turning away from God and worshiping idols, and then they would fall into captivity and then cry out to God, and so God would raise up a judge who would lead them back on track, and then the whole thing just kept repeating. And, and um, finally, uh, God raised up King Saul, and King Saul is a fascinating study. Um, my dad's favorite movie was the old Clint Eastwood Western, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And that, that title, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, that could be the title of a biography of King Saul's life. When we first meet him, he is very good. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, it starts out this way. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing whose name was Kish. Kish had a son named Saul. As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. And we'll see, he also had the humility and the character inside to match the good looks on the outside. So everybody around him thought he looked like a king on the outside. God thought he looked like a king on the inside. And so in verse 17, when Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord spoke to him and said, this is the man I told you about. He will govern my people. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil, poured it on Saul's head, and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you'll meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, The donkeys that you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He's asking, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, and I hope he was writing all of this down. These are complicated instructions. This is like the instructions on a survivor challenge or something. But as you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high places with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them. And they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Wow, pretty good start. Called by God, anointed by the prophet, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I tell you what, I would vote for Saul. Verse 9, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. So Saul gets put forward as the candidate for kingship. Although it's kind of funny, when they try and find him, he is nowhere to be found. He's hiding in the coat closet. They pull him out. They bring him into the limelight. They make him king. And then down in verse 27, though, it says, but there were some scoundrels there who said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him, and they brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. And I like that. Early on in Saul's life, Saul was able to overlook an offense. Uh, not so much at the end of his life. 
Next verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out your right eye and so bring disgrace on everyone in Israel. The elders of Jabesh said, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you and you can gouge out our eyes. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms, the people wept aloud. But verse six, when Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God powerfully came upon him, and he burned with anger, and he rescued the people from Jabesh-Gilead. He rallied some troops. He went in pursuit. He rescued them. And then in verse 12, it says, The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Who were those scoundrels? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. But Saul said, No one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. That's the good. Unfortunately, in Saul's life, the good started giving way to the bad. And once Saul became powerful, he stopped relying solely on God. And tragically, that's a recurring theme in his life, in scripture, and probably in our lives. Saul, we see, will habitually cut corners, and he'll kind of honor God, but not really. And it continues until in chapter 13, verse 13, Samuel has no choice but to come back to Saul and rebuke him and retract some of that blessing. Samuel said to him, you have done a foolish thing, Saul. You have not, connect, you have not kept the command the Lord gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And, and tragically, Saul didn't respond to this. He could have broken and responded and repented, but he didn't. It, it got so bad, the backsliding continued until... It came to this in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and in your instructions. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, please, forgive my sin. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord too many times. The Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory, the, the, the kabod, the weight, the excellence of Israel does not lie or change his mind. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. And Saul replied, listen, I've sinned, but please honor me before the elders. 
and before Israel. Come back with me so that I can worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. But we know that Saul's worship was only skin deep. And when someone's goodness turns to badness, it eventually gets ugly. And from this moment on, King Saul degenerates into chaos. He started out wise, humble, courageous, valiant, but he ended his life mentally off balance, eaten alive by jealousy. Um, early in his reign, he was able to overlook a true offense, but later in his life, he started throwing javelins at people over perceived offenses. Now, we know that Saul famously threw javelins at David when young David was leading worship for Saul, but Saul even threw a javelin at his own son simply because his son was friends with David. Uh, one more passage on this in, in uh, 1 Samuel 20. Saul's anger, this is verse 30, flared up at Jonathan, his son. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you've sided with David, the son of Jesse, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Now, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Ugliness had consumed him. And I, I want to end the message. I want to end our time today uh, reading an excerpt to you from Gene Edwards' little book, A Tale of Three Kings. This was our summer reading book a few years ago. And I, I want to read... Um, Edward's description of King Saul. And, and then we're going to take a thought to heart from this and we'll, we'll receive communion and then we'll, we'll conclude today. But um, let's end with a little story time. So just give me a couple of minutes and, and listen to this description. What kind of man was Saul? Who was this one who made himself David's enemy? Anointed of God, deliverer of Israel, and yet remembered mostly for his madness. Forget the bad press. Forget the stinging reviews. Forget his reputation. Look at the facts. Saul was one of the greatest figures of human history. He was a farm boy, a country kid who made good. He was tall, good-looking, and well-liked, and he was baptized into the Spirit of God. He also came from a good family. In his lineage were some of the greatest historical figures of all humanity. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, these were his ancestors. Do you remember the background? Abraham founded a nation. Moses set the nation free from slavery. Joshua gave those people a toehold in the land that God had promised them. The judges kept the whole thing from disintegrating into total chaos. And that's when Saul came along. It was Saul who took these people and welded them into a united kingdom. Saul united a people and founded a kingdom. Few men have ever done that. He created an army out of thin air. He won battles in the power of God. He defeated the enemy again and again, as few have ever done. Remember that. And remember that this man was immersed in the Spirit. Furthermore, he was a prophet. 
The Spirit came on him in power and authority. He did and said unprecedented things, and it was all by the power of the Spirit residing on him. He was everything people today are seeking to be. Empowered with the Holy Spirit. Able to do the impossible for God. A leader chosen by God with power from God. Saul was given authority that was God's alone. He was God's anointed and God treated him that way. He was also eaten with jealousy filled with self-importance and willing to live in spiritual darkness. Is there a moral in these contradictions? Yeah. And it will splinter a lot of your concepts about power, about great men and women under God's anointing, and about God himself. Many pray for the power of God, more every year. These prayers sound powerful, sincere, godly, and without ulterior motive. Hidden under such prayer and fervor, however, are ambition a craving for fame, the desire to be considered a spiritual giant. The person who prays such a prayer may not even know it, but dark motives and desires are in the heart, in your heart. And even as people pray these prayers, they're hollow inside. There is little internal spiritual growth. Prayer for power is the quick and short way circumnavigating internal growth. There is a vast difference between the outward clothing of the Spirit's power and the inward filling of the Spirit's life. In the first, despite the power, the hidden man of the heart may remain unchanged. In the latter, that monster is dealt with. Interesting about God he hears all of those requests of power, which fervent young men and women pray in every generation, and he answers them. Very often, he grants these requests for power, for authority. And sometimes, in answering them, he says yes to some very unworthy vessels. He gives unworthy people his power, even though they're a pile of dead men's bones on the inside? Why does God do such a thing? Well, the answer is both simple and shocking. He sometimes gives unworthy vessels a greater portion of power so that others will eventually see the true state of internal nakedness within that individual. So think again when you hear the power merchant. Remember, God sometimes gives people power for unseen reasons. A person can be living in the grossest of sin, and the outer gift can still be working perfectly. The gifts of God once given cannot be recalled even in the presence of sin. Furthermore, some people living just such lives are the Lord's anointed in the Lord's eyes. King Saul was living proof of that. The gifts cannot be revoked. Terrifying, isn't it? If you are young and you've never seen such things, you may be certain that in the next 40 years, you will see highly gifted and very powerful men and women um, reputed to be leaders in the kingdom of God do some very dark and ugly deeds. So what does this world need? Gifted people outwardly empowered or individuals who are broken, inwardly transformed? Keep in mind, some who have been given the very power of God have raised armies defeated the enemy, brought forth mighty works of God, preached and prophesied with unparalleled power and eloquence and thrown spears and hated other people and attacked others and plotted to kill and prophesied naked and even consulted witches. 
the the thing about kings is that they require our allegiance. And if it's a bad king, that's a horrifying prospect. But if it's a good king, if it's a king that actually loves you and actually gave his life for you, then it is glorious and liberating. We have that king in Jesus. We have a king that loved you enough to give his life for you. But, but there's something that you need to know and never forget about this king and this kingdom. This king and this kingdom requires our total allegiance. Half-hearted efforts are dangerous in the kingdom of God. They're dangerous because either people don't go far enough in the kingdom to actually experience the promise of the kingdom. And then they think the kingdom doesn't work. But it's not that it doesn't work. It's that they've never gone far enough to experience what's been promised in that life. Or it's dangerous because we become very confusing to people because of the discrepancy in our lives. And the things we claim to believe and follow are not actually lived in our half-hearted efforts. And it's confusing and it adds to the chaos. I want us to be a wholehearted congregation. The times that we are living in demand wholehearted devotion to Jesus. The times that we're living in do not demand political Christians, even though the kingdom of God will inform our politics. The time that we're living in does not require an us versus them type of Christianity even though the kingdom of God calls us to a countercultural high standard of living, the times that we're living in demand Christians who look like their Christ. And when we receive communion together, which we'll do right now, uh, we are opening our hearts to this king, and we're giving the Holy Spirit permission to search us and change us and shine the spotlight on any hint of King Saul that might be lurking around in our own hearts. And we're saying, God, would you wash and preserve the good? And would you expose between us and purge the bad and the ugly? And so would you take the communion elements that you've prepared? And, and um, if you've got a little, little cup like mine, you can peel the tabs back. If you have something you've prepared just in your home, Get those ready and get the, get the bread portion available. And, and let's end listening to these words from the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. he said, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. So would you just break the little piece of bread or, or cracker or whatever you're using? Break that bread symbolically. He broke it. And when he had broke it, he gave thanks and said, this is my body, which is for you. My brokenness is for you, for your healing, for your life, for your wholeness. Do this. Take the bread in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, after supper he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Uh, when we remember Jesus at the communion table, uh, we're remembering in two directions. 
We remember what he did, that he came and died and was raised from the dead. And all of that means that we can be forgiven. We we can have new life. We have hope. We will be raised with him. But Paul said that we do this, um, uh, uh, proclaiming that until he returns. So we're also remembering forward and knowing that Jesus promised to return. And in between remembering backwards and forwards, there is a kingdom for us to live in. There's a a, a king to know and a Christ-like way of living. And when we take the bread and the cup, we're asking God, transform me. Make me more like this king. Make me more like the savior of the world. Wash me, cleanse me, make me yours. And so Jesus, please do that now as we step into this moment. Listen, um, communion's not just a ritual. If our hearts are right, and we're remembering backwards and forwards, this is a holy moment, and this is holy ground, and we we do this before a holy king, and so let's take the bread together. And then if your cup is, is ready, let's gratefully and soberly take the cup. Life, the way that it was designed to be lived, is available for you in God's kingdom, relating to the king and living his way. Let's go for it. Let's be those wholehearted people that have been raised to life on the inside and are living different than everything else that's happening in our world. I love you so much. God bless you. I pray that you have an awesome week and that this is an incredible summer for you, for me, for Grace Church and all that concerns us. God bless.